Father, thank you for each of the women here today. Thank you for the beautiful fall day that you've given us. Thank you for the sunshine and for what we are going to study today in your word. May we be women who are hearers and doers of your word, who love you more because of a deeper understanding of you. May it not be text that we are so familiar with that we miss the importance and the depth and the um, magnitude of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. We pray your blessing on this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And as we begin, as always, we will review first. So a few weeks ago when we started, I'd reminded you for a couple of weeks of what the purpose of our study was. And we haven't discussed that in a couple of weeks, so I just wanted to remind us, what are we trying to accomplish this year? What is the purpose of the New Testament study? And so the purpose of our study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through Scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole, and how it reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. And then we, last week we reviewed and we said, remember, this is not disconnected from what we've been learning in the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, after the fall, God promised one who was going to crush the serpent, right? One who was going to reverse the curse in Genesis 49. And we have been tracing that seed, looking for the one who is going to bring redemption, is going to reverse the curse. And we said, Remember, when we studied all last year how that seed has been promised to come through the covenants, through the Abrahamic covenant, through the nation of Israel, through the Davidic covenant. And when we came to the Davidic covenant, we know that it's going to be a king and a king from David's line. And as we went through First and Second Chronicles, we kept thinking, is this the king? And is this the king? And is this the king? And it's not. And, and the people are so sinful, they go into exile. And yet, w- as we close the Old Testament, we're still waiting with expectation and yearning and longing and hope for the king. And then we get the privilege of not waiting 400 years, but turning our pages of our Bible to the book of Matthew, and then we see this king that we've been longing for and that we've, they've been waiting, you know, what, 4,000 about years for? He has come. He has come. And we see his birth and the announcement of the king and the genealogies. And when we went through Matthew 1 through 4 and saw all the ways that it was clear that the king had been born and how he passed the test of the Davidic king in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. And then we saw his teachings on the law. This is what the law is really about. This is what, how you should be interpreting it, not adding to it like the Pharisees have done, not having external appearances only, but having it change your heart. And then he authenticated the message with his miracles. And so the first 11 chapters of Matthew, it's just the king and the kingdom and the proclamation of the kingdom. And you're thinking, wow, this is it. And then chapter 12, they reject him. They reject the king and the kingdom. And we find out that because of this rejection, the kingdom is going to be delayed. It's going to come. It is going to come as promised, as promised in the Old Testament, as Jesus is going to even make clear in the Olivet Discourse. It is going to come, but it's going to be delayed. And that's when we first hear about the church. And now we're going to come in today's, cha- today's lesson to the climax of history. And that's going to be the death and the resurrection of the king. And so that's what our lec- lecture is today. And if you're even trying to like, keep this in your mind, like how am I going to review this? If you just look at the headings of the past, in your, if you pull out your calendar and look at the headings of the book of Matthew, it's a really great summary and an outline of the book. And you can just, if you can remember those titles, you can kind of remember, here's the flow of the book of Matthew and the main points that are happening. And so today we're going to look at the crucifixion and the resurrection of the king. So as we begin, we're going to start with, and, and again, 
they always tell you, don't apologize for what you're not going to say because then people only focus on that. <laughs> but we have a lot of material to cover, and it's very dense and rich, and we are not going to be able to go into all of it in detail. I'm so thankful that the lesson covered it all in detail, and you went through it, and I'm relying on the fact that you did your lesson and that you studied that, and we're going to look at four main points today. We're going to look at the triumphal entry, we're going to look at the Olivet Three main points, the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to look at the Crucifixion and Resurrection. And so the Triumphal Entry, the Olivet Discourse, and the Crucifixion and Resurrection, and then we'll conclude. So beginning with point one, the Triumphal Entry, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Okay. Now, we know from other Gospels that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had been, been in Jerusalem, but these were much smaller, and because he wasn't well-known at that point, it, they weren't these grand-scale events. And remember, Matthew has a specific audience and a specific um, thesis that he's trying to prove. And so he is saying, chapters 4 through 20, Jesus is in Galilee, and now he's going to Jerusalem. And if you can think back with me to the Old Testament study and to when we studied King David, and actually even in Genesis— why is Jerusalem so significant? Because Jerusalem is a really big deal throughout scripture, right? And if you remember, it is where, in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is from. And Melchizedek is what? A king and a priest, right? And he, when we get to Hebrews, is a type of Christ, right? In that he is a king and a priest. And he is from Salem or from Jerusalem, the king and the priest. And then we also see when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, it's at Mount Moriah. But what's the modern day name for Mount Moriah? Mount Zion, right, which is where Jerusalem is. The place of sacrifice, the place of kings, the place of priests, and the place of sacrifice set up. Because remember, the Old Testament does, it's a narrative. It shows, it doesn't tell. And so it's showing us the significance of this place by all these events that happen here. It's the place of sacrifice. It's the place of substitution, right? Because is Isaac sacrificed? No, he's not. And so it, we see its significance there. We also see in Deuteronomy that God says over and over again, when you are established as a nation, and when you are established in the land, there's going to be a city, a capital, and at that place, I'm going to put my name. And it's not named in Deuteronomy, but we know, because of further revelation, that once David is established as the king over the United Kingdom, not just over Judah, but once he's the king of all of the 12 tribes, where is his capital? Where does he establish it? In Jerusalem. When he establishes it in Jerusalem, we know now that's the place where God has put his name. That is the place where the temple is. That is the place of sacrifice. That is where the king is from. If you remember, I shared with you a quote from Abner Chow where he said, very critical and relative to Jerusalem, sorry, Jerusalem is very critical and relative to kings and politics. It's relative to covenant promises, to sacrifice and priests. This is a huge theological city. David knows there is only one city where everything happens, the city of Jerusalem. And if you're going to be king, you are going to rule from one place, and that's Jerusalem. You can't have kings without Jerusalem, and you can't have Jerusalem without kings. That's how significant it is. And so, as Jesus has been claiming to be king, and he is now going to enter Jerusalem, it's very significant, because if he's really the king, he has to be the king from Jerusalem. He has to be accepted there, and it's significant because of when he's going. He's going during the Feast of Passover. And what does Passover represent? Their great deliverance. It is the greatest salvific event of the Old Testament, right? Before the cr crucifixion, this is the greatest picture they have of redemption. And this is the Passover. So he's making a very bold claim as he enters Jerusalem. And he enters on a colt. 
And again, this goes all the way back to Genesis 49, 11, where J Jacob is blessing his sons, and he's saying from Judah is going to come the king, and when the king comes, he's going to bind the donkey's colt, right? The king the do and the donkey's colt are associated there. When he reverses the curse, right, this is how things are going to be different. You can tie a donkey to a vine, and then you go to Judges, in the book of Judges, when the judges set themselves up as kings, they all rode donkeys, right? And then we get to um, the, the prophecy in Zechariah 9, and you can listen as I read. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And it seems like they understood most of this verse, but the humble part. Right? He's going to come, and humble here in the text can also mean afflicted. The king is going to come, and he's going to be humble. He's going to be afflicted. And as he comes in, the people understand what he's claiming. And I don't mean that they have a salvific understanding, or that, but they lay down their um, coats, and that is what you did for a new king. As a new king was going to be put into power, you laid down your cloaks for him to ride on. And when the military leader came back with great victory, you waved palm branches. And so remember, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a king who's going to be a military leader for them, who's going to deliver them. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? If he can raise the dead and if he can make food out of nothing, we become an undefeatable army. We have a military might that no one could defeat. And that's what they're looking for. And that's how they're worshiping him as he come in. But they also call him what? The son of David. Blessed is he, right? Who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're calling him the son of David. So they understand his claim. And the Pharisees understand his claim. They are incredibly unhappy and angry because their power and their authority is going to be challenged. And after he comes in, what does he do? He is going to cleanse the temple. Look with me in Matthew 21, 12. In Matthew 21, 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so with authority, who can come and cleanse out the temple? The high priest can, the king can. And so he comes and he cleanses the temple, and as he's done throughout the whole book of Matthew, when he's sh demonstrated his authority, he backs it up by showing he has the right to this authority. And what does verse 14 says? And the blind and the lame came to the him in the temple, and he healed them. And I learned this week in my study that healing the blind is a specific messianic miracle. And this goes back to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, over and over, he says that they're blind, right? But he's speaking a lot of spiritual blindness. And there's this corollary that if you can heal physical blindness, you can heal spiritual blindness. And when the true king comes, he has that power. And you don't see anywhere else in scripture when anyone heals the blind but Christ. You see people heal the lame, you see people even raise people from the dead or cast out demons, but this is reserved for the Messiah. So he does, again, a messianic sign of healing the blind. But it also ties back to the significance of Jerusalem and the king. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8, this is when David is going to conquer Jerusalem. And in verse 6, it says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years, I think I'm in the wrong chapter, sorry. Yeah, I'm just in the wrong verse, sorry. Chapter 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. 
thinking David could not come in here. They were so sure that they thought the only defense our city needs are the blind and the lame. That's how secure we are. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the, the, blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, with, with, is with him. So what happens the first time in Matthew, the first time that Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple, who comes to him? The blind and the lame, right? Who aren't going to enter the house, who are hated by David's soul. And you know what? The blind and the lame don't enter the house because the king has come and he heals them. And he can eradicate blindness and he can remove lameness. He can change this. And this ties back to he is the true Davidic king. But again, going back to the prophecy, he's going to be humble and afflicted. And that is what the people don't understand. That's what the people don't see. And that's what the people don't want. They want a military leader, not one who will be humble and afflicted. And we'll see how they're going to turn on him very quickly. But before we get to that, right after Jesus has cleansed the temple, they're going to be, he's going to now unite the opposition against him because Jesus is in control of everything that is happening during this week. From now until his crucifixion, the, the Passion Week as it's called, Jesus is controlling the events. And he, is going, he knows he has to die, and so he is going to stir up the opposition to push that agenda forward. And that's what happens in the rest of these chapters through 22 when he is calling out the Pharisees and inciting their anger towards them. Todd Bowen summarizes this very neatly when he says, Jesus offended the Pharisees, so he offended them by telling parables that revealed, one, he knew they wanted to kill him. Two, that he considered prostitutes ahead of them in line for the kingdom. And three, the kingdom would be taken away from them. He follows all of this up with a blistering attack that exposes the Jewish leaders as self-righteous hypocrites who negate the word of God and were just like their fathers who killed the prophets. He predicted that they would go to hell and their houses would be left desolate. So that's what we see happening in the rest of chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23. He is stirring up his opposition, and it's through this teaching that finally the Pharisees and the Sadducees say, we need to join forces and get rid of him. We, enough is enough. We need to kill him. So this brings us to point two. So we've just seen Jesus has entered. He's made a bold claim to be the king. He has backed that up by cleansing the temple, by doing the miracles of the king, and by telling the Pharisees, you are false leaders. And now we're going to go to our second point, the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he goes to the Mount of Olives and he teaches his disciples. They ask him a question, and he teaches them about the end times, and that gets this fancy title, the Olivet Discourse. And that's going to be our second point. And it's important for us to know as we go to this, beginning in chapter 24, who Jesus is talking to. I think we can often have the wrong audience in mind and wrongly apply this. He is speaking to a Jewish audience. He is speaking to the Jews, and he's speaking to them about really the Old Testament. They've asked him about their old eschatology, which is a word for the end times, what's going to happen at the end. And so they're asking him to explain their Old Testament eschatology. And really, the Sermon on the Mount is a big um, an explanation of Daniel 7. So he's speaking to the Jews, and he's speaking to them about what's going to happen right before the kingdom comes. And he categorizes, if, if we look at all of this, he, there's four big things that he says are going to happen. There's going to be birth pangs, wars, famine, earthquakes, there's going to be persecution, the temple's going to be defiled, and Jesus' Jesus's return is going to be sudden and powerful. And you might think, well, that, that's what's happening right now. 
And to a degree, yes, many of those things are happening. But they've been, you know, we've had earthquakes and we've had wars since the beginning of time. Part of that is, is life in a fallen world. Right before the kingdom comes, this will escalate to levels that we have not experienced yet and we don't know by experience yet. And how, how is this clear? Look with me in Matthew 25, and, and um, you'll see he talks about the abomination of desolation. Well, that is fulfilled in Revelation 13. And Revelation 13 happens during the tribulation. So while some of these things might be, the, you know, the beginning of the birth pangs, we are not living in this full event yet because most of these things are shown to happen in Revelation. Because they happen in Revelation, I'm going to discuss them mostly when we get to Revelation because we just have so much to cover today, and I feel like we're going to cover that there. But I just wanted you to see that. Another example would be Matthew 24:29. It says the sun and the moon are going to be turned to blood. That happens in Revelation 6 and 8. So many of these things that he talks about will be fulfilled during the tribulation period. So he's telling them right before I come, right before the kingdom comes, these are the signs you need to look for. This is the close of the end of the age. And he's, um, sorry. Yep, I think that's where we're going to leave that for now. <laughs> so as he's explained all this to them, be careful that we don't get um, we don't read, he's not discussing the church here, and, and that doesn't mean that there is no application for the church. It helps us set up our worldview. It helps us understand where we are in history. It helps us know exactly where history is going. But he's not discussing that as specifically here. He's explaining there, you've asked me about the Old Testament, you've asked me about what the prophets and what Daniel have told you about the end, and this is what you need to look for. I want us to look at one of the paragraphs because as he's explaining to them, he says, one of his main points is, you need to be ready. You need to be ready for me to come because verse 20, chapter 24, verse 36 through 41, it will be like a flood. It, 20, verses 42 through 44, it will be like a thief. Verses 45 through 51, it will be like the surprise return of a master. And verses um, 25, chapter 25, 1 through 13, it's going to be like the sudden coming of a bridegroom. It's going to come all of a sudden. And so you're waiting for the kingdom right now. And you're waiting for these signs to come so you know that the kingdom is coming. But while you're waiting, you need to be faithful. So I want us to look at the parable that tells us about that in Matthew 24, verse 14. In Matthew 24, 14, we hear about the tenants, right? Sorry, 25, 14. 25, 14. So... Read with me. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his an master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and in my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is the point of this parable? There are, two, there are three servants, right? And the first two servants are given different, different talents, right? Different amounts of money to invest. But they get the same reward, don't they? Both of them are faithful with they, what they've been given, and both of them are given the reward of entering into their father's rest. Well done, is told to both of them. Enter, more is going to be given to you. And God is telling us why we are waiting, and while we are waiting for the kingdom, we have been entrusted with different things. We have been called to faithful stewardship. And it's not about the amount you've been entrusted with. It's about your faithfulness with what you've been given, right? Different amounts, same faithfulness, same reward. The third servant shows by his response, he doesn't even know his master. When he says, I know you to be that, he's really saying, my master's a thief, right? You, you stow, you gather, you don't even sow. You take what's not yours. And that's not true of the master. But the master, instead of even bothering to defend himself, just says, I'm going to judge you by your own words. So if you think I'm that kind of man, showing one you don't know the master, because we just saw in the two verses, how generous is he to his, his servants? How kind is he to them? He's, so this man doesn't know the master. He's not a true believer. He's done nothing with what he's been given, and it wasn't his to begin with, right? So he has what God takes back what is his, and he punishes that servant, and he uses his own words to judge him, saying, if you thought this was true about me, you should have acted differently even by your own judgment. It's not true of me, but even by your own judgment, you pronounce your guilt. So we are to be faithful, and, and so is the difference between the believers and, and those who profess belief but aren't, you know, the true believers and the Pharisees. People who put on religion for what will get them or care about the external but aren't truly those who know the Lord. And I wanted us to pause here and just think about what have we been entrusted with? What are we called to be faithful stewards of? And are we being stewards of this while we wait? Or in waiting, have we become complacent and just feel like it's going to go on like life is always going? Have you noticed, um, at least it's been this way in my life, life just kind of seems like oh, every day is going to be like this. I'm going to go to bed, I'm going to wake up, we're going to have this kind of normal routine that we have until tragedy strikes. But tragedy is very sudden, isn't it? Your life seems normal, and all of a sudden, in a moment, it changes. You get a phone call, and there's been a car accident, and someone's died. You get a phone call, and you have a cancer diagnosis. It's and so life seems very normal, and you can get kind of complacent. But I notice when it changes, it changes incredibly rapidly, and very suddenly, and unexpectedly. So let's not get lulled into a false sense of, well, we have time. We don't know how much time we have. It reminds me, do you remember last year when Nick Woods came back from his missions trip and he said that in, in our nation, Christians, uh, just as a general statement, we tend to think of spiritual maturity by growing in our knowledge. We always want to buy a new book. We always want to learn something new. We always want to increase our knowledge. And he said in other countries, they think they want to close the gap between their knowledge and their practice. We all have a gap between how we obey and what we know. And we just keep adding to that gap. I want to know more. I want to know more. That makes me more mature. Instead of thinking, are we closing the gap by being more obedient? And I would say the second is probably the more mature believer, right? To be more obedient with what you know. When I think about this, I often 
think about, I, I give a talk on the importance of scripture memory. And when I do that, um, I'm always reminded of how, of one thing that we have been entrusted with that I think we all take for granted. There's many things, I'm just picking one. But I look around and I see that you all have a Bible. How many of you have more than two Bibles? Three? Four? Five? I have over 13 in my home. That's years ago I counted. Because it seems to get wrong of a Bible, right? I don't know. I feel like, what do you do with the Bible when it's old? I'm not going to throw it away. But we have, we have a lot of Bibles. And my kids have Bibles, so I counted theirs, you know. But we have a lot of Bibles. Have you ever stopped to think, and this was my own thinking, I did, I did very, my husband's an accountant, he likes exact things, I do round figures, so this is round figures right now. You live in the 2,000 years of world history when the Bible was even complete. For most of the history of the world, you couldn't even have a complete copy of scripture. Not only that, but once the scripture was complete, there were no printing presses. There, weren't a, there wasn't a great literacy rate. You would have to wait until about 500 years ago for there to be a printing press. That brings you down to one twelfth of human history. Even then, there were huge political obstacles to overcome. The Roman Catholic Church controlled the Bible. It was mostly in Latin. You had to be a special monk to have access to it. It was not in the language of the common people. And it took the Reformation and people literally dying and being martyred to say the Bible will be in the common tongue of the people and everyone should have access to it. So 500 years, one twelfth of human history. Even then, you still had to overcome the fact that most people probably were illiterate and you don't have religious freedom. So let's count religious freedom, again, I'm being very generic here, as landing at Plymouth Rock and with our nation. So that puts us at 1620, so approximately 400 years ago. One fifteenth of human history. Do you know how rare that is? And you happen to live in the country. Like this, isn't, this is not worldwide, what I'm describing. There are still many countries and nations who have no Bible in their language and who have no freedom to enjoy it. And we just all said, we have multiple copies. More than that, you speak English. That's a big deal. Do you know that there's, I don't think, any other language that has the amount of Bible resources in it as English? The church I was at in California had an international branch, an international ministry, and they're constantly getting asked, can you translate this resource into our language? Can you please translate that? They're always needing resources translated into their languages. We have so many, the biographies and the commentaries, and the, it's, all, it's mostly in English. A lot of it's in English. According to the Joshua Project, and this is a few years out of date, there are still 350 million people whose languages have no Bible translation. 42% of people groups remain unreached. And you have the Bible. And do you know what's really tragic to me? Before the Bible was available, people memorized it better. And now we have it, and we don't want to because we have it. And we might not always have it. There was a law that just barely got canceled right now in California, and it's probably going to come up next legislation session that could have outlawed the Bible in California. We are just on the brink. You don't know how much longer it can, it can continue. We have the Bible. Do we take it for granted? And you know what else? You did nothing to be born in this time period. You did nothing to be born in America. You did nothing to be born when you, in this language. It's all given to you. It's all given to you. We have a great to whom much has been given, much is required. We have much given to us. So that's just one way we can look at being faithful with God's word. And this brings us to our second point. So we've seen that Jesus came to the triumphal entry. He's taught his disciples that he's coming again. He's coming suddenly. There are signs of the times that we need to look for, but we also need to be faithful while we're waiting for that. 
and now we come to the crucifixion. And th there are many ways we could look at the crucifixion. <laughs> I can't tell you how this is the hardest lecture I've, I've ever done. <laughs> like, I just, I, and I know that in many ways I am very human and can't do it justice. So I want, but, but God is faithful and he has revealed so much to us in his word. And I want us to see first in the crucifixion that Jesus was in control of everything that happened. And I think we think, uh, well, yes, he was God. And yes, but don't forget that he was also man. And don't forget that he emptied himself and became nothing, right? Philippians 2. And he set aside a lot of his, he, the exercise of a lot of his authority. And I think one of the things he set aside was omniscience. I think when he was born, he was a baby. And he had to learn to talk. And he had to learn to walk. And you think, well, how did he know all this stuff? He knew the Bible. He understood the Old Testament and the prophecies about him. And on top of that, I d I'm, not, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit did not reveal things to him. I think the Holy Spirit did reveal things to him, but I think we often focus on that he's God and don't remember that he was also man. And so as we come to this, look in verse 26. I love this. We see when Jesus had finished all, his, all these things, saying he was, saying he, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So he knows the day and the event that, and how he will die. He's going to die by crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace with the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. So those who are planning to kill him are planning to kill him after the feast. This isn't their plan to do it now, but Jesus knows it's going to happen in two days. Jesus also knows that um, we see next the anointed. That he, he, he understands he's going to die, but the disciples still miss it. The woman comes and anoints him for his burial, right? She's heard his teaching. She knows he's going to die, but the disciples don't want to believe. They don't want to believe he's going to die, and they've shut their ears to that teaching, and I think there's a warning, and we see that they really are confused. They are not at the tomb waiting for him to come out three days later, right? They have shut their ears to this teaching, and we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing, that we don't shut our ears to the teaching of scripture that is inconvenient or too hard for us. We are called to believe the full teaching and counsel of the word of God. So he is anointed by the woman, but the disciples don't believe it. We also see that Jesus knows in Matthew um, 26, 31, that he's going to be betrayed. That's how the Pharisees are going to get him. They have this plan, but they don't know Judas is going to come say, hey, I'll help you out. But he knows in verse 31, he's going to be betrayed. He knows the disciples are going to fall away and that Peter is going to deny him, we see in verse 32. And so Jesus is in control of all of the events. He is making them happen. He has stirred up the opposition. He is coming to be the sacrifice. And this isn't some suicidal mission. This is sacrifice. This is laying down his life. We also see that prophecy has been fulfilled. And this is, again, crucial because Matthew was speaking to a Jewish audience, and he goes to great lengths to show them that their Messiah is the prophesied Messiah of Scripture. Do you know that in... Um, it's been a few years, but if you go to Israel, if you were to go to uh, Orthodox Jew, they don't read Isaiah 53. <laughs> That's something they edit out. I mean, it's there, but they don't read it. It is not part of their daily readings because, and do you see how, again, you went through the lesson, so I'm not going to go through it verse by verse like we did in the lesson, but do you see how clear when you read <laughs> Isaiah 53 and then compare it with the account of Matthew, it's just like, Isaiah prophesied it, he's going to be mocked, mocked. He's going to be spit on, spit on. He's going to be beaten, beaten. He's going to boom, 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 boom. It just happens and fulfills this prophecy. Again, they're closing their ears to teaching they don't want to hear. They don't read Isaiah 53. And then what does, Isaiah, what does Matthew tell us in chapter 26, 53? This has all taken place so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
That's his emphasis. This is the prophesied king, the suffering servant. And he's also the king. Look with me in verse, chapter 26, verse 63. In verse 63, he is being tried by Caiaphas. And what does he say? Um, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. And just, I find that so ironic, and it even makes me angry now. Like, he really cared about the living God. But, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That takes us right back to Daniel 7, right? The Son of Man of Daniel 7. This is a claim to be God. This is a claim to be king. And it's, again, clear if you go down to Matthew 27, 11, when he's standing in front of Pilate. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. And then what do they do when they, when they are mocking him and they're crucifying him? They dress him like a king, and they put a crown of thorns on him, mocking that he is the king, and they put a plaque on the cross saying, what, what? The king of the Jews. They know his claim. That's, it's not that they missed who Jesus was. It's because they understood what he was claiming, that they killed him. So we see the prophecy fulfilled. We see that Jesus is in control of these events, that he's laying down his life. They do not take it from him. We see that he is the king, that he is the servant. And I think we can be so familiar with this. I want to read a poem that had a huge impact on me. It's called When God Weeps by Steve Estes and Johnny Erickson Tata. And it's about the crucifixion. And it is not inspired. They take some poetic license to try to imagine what it would be like to Christ at the crucifixion. But I believe it's really based on scripture. It says, The face that Moses had begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped, bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives ener energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations that it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go. They lift up the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to, to his other and growing dread. He's beginning to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion, like a lion disturbed, and shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father looking at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. 
You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drink. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing um, exhortation, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, loathe these things. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. I think we can be so familiar that we lose our awe at the magnitude of what has happened. But I do wish the poem didn't stop there because it doesn't end with him dying. It ends with the resurrection, right? And that, I think, the death and the resurrection is the climax of history. And so you turn to chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come to see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. In this, all that we've been tracing, all this redemption, Jesus has crushed the serpent. It has happened. Jesus has answered Job's cry that there would be one who could touch man and touch God and mediate. Jesus has made atonement and has ratified the new covenant. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the high priest who once and for all has made atonement for sin and can go sit at the right hand of Father because the work is done. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus is the second Adam, the perfect man. Jesus is the second David, the true king. Remember how we saw 
with Jacob that the true king, sorry, with um, Judah, the true king will lay down his life for his brother. Jesus has laid down his life. He has purchased the kingdom. He has purchased the world through his blood. He can stand in the place of his people. He can carry them on their shoulder. He can be a true shepherd to them. He's the true hero of the story. We are merely but his slaves, his servants. And if we do the best we're supposed to do, we only do what we were called to do. But he has accomplished it all. He has given us the victory. Redemption is accomplished. And though we are waiting for the full consummation of that, when he comes and he reigns and we are in the new heavens and new earth with him, it is a sure thing. It is done now. This is where Satan is defeated. This is where death is conquered. And everything we've been looking forward to, he has accomplished it. Now we're just waiting for its full consummation. And that brings us to the end of the book of Matthew. And how does Matthew conclude? How Matthew concludes is how we are going to conclude today. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It leaves with a command for us to go and to make disciples. You know the story of redemption. You know the good news. You know that there is only everything, everything in this world will pass away, right? There is only one hope for the people in this world, and that is they trust their Savior. I've heard it said that people go to hell for one sin, and not that they've only committed one sin, but it's because they reject this forgiveness. What we just read, God crushed his son. He purchased redemption. He has going to make all things new, and when you reject his son, that's why you're sent to hell. And we have the good news that can tell people, you can go to heaven, you can know the king, you can be in the kingdom. And that's what we are called and charged to do. I don't think we can say it any better than Matthew, so we're going to close there. Father, thank you for your son's sacrifice. Thank you for your great love that the tools that you created were used against your own son, and you allowed that to purchase the kingdom, to redeem man, to reverse the curse kill the serpent and crush him. And we pray that we would be so thankful that we would keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we leave here, as we go through our week, and that we would share the good news of the kingdom, that we would spread it far and wide, that we would support those who go far to do it, that we would be obedient to the Great Commission. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.